good morning, church family. It's so good to be with you guys. After a three-week break, I am back, and I am fired up, ready to share with you God's word. If you're new with us here today, as you heard Lauren say a moment ago, my name is Pete. I have the distinct honor and joy of serving as the lead pastor here, and we are delighted to have you with us as we kick off a brand new series in honor of the Christmas season. And with it being Christmas, uh, I'm sure you guys saw these cards that were on your seats when you walked in. I wanna call your attention to these now. Uh, This is to encourage you to be thinking about who you want to invite and bring with you to our four Christmas time in Buffalo experiences that will be on December 17th and 18th. Uh, The two experiences on the 17th will be at 2 and 4 p.m. and on Sunday at 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. We're expecting over 1,300 people to be in attendance across these four experiences. So be thinking about which one you want to come to. And uh, we have printed up 2,500 invites. And so there was only one on each chair. But if you want more, say you've got five friends, 10 friends that you want to, you know, put a visual reminder of these experiences and, and give one of these to them, you can stop by the guest services area out in the foyer and request some more. And we would love to run out of these this week so that we have to print more. Uh, and so I just want to encourage you to take these with you. Be praying about what God is going to do. We're believing for many people to come to Christ because that's the reason he came to begin with. Amen. Well, one of the amazing things about Christmas, one of my favorite parts of the Christmas season is the giving and exchanging of gifts, right? When I was a kid, my absolute favorite part was the anticipation of, you know, the countdown and leading up to the day when you would come down the stairs in the morning and, you know, see the array of presents laid out under the Christmas tree. Now, as an adult, I find much more joy in giving gifts than I do in getting gifts. Uh, and how many of you know there is, there is very little satisfaction that compares with the satisfaction that comes when you have spent some time thinking about the perfect gift for a person, and then you give it to them, and they open it, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. This is amazing. It's like you know me so well. And inside you're like, yes, nailed it. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever get a gift from someone that just communicated that they knew you? You know what I'm talking about? Like my wife is really good at this. She's a thoughtful gift giver. I kind of suck at this. I'm really not good at giving gifts. One of the best people I know at this though is Pastor Bethany Mazur on our staff. And the hoots and hollers, I can tell some people have been on the receiving end of a gift from Bethany Mazur. She, you know, if you have ever heard of the five love languages, which is basically a theory that says there are five primary ways in which people give and receive love. It's either physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, or gifts. And for Bethany, gifts is definitely one of her top two love languages. Not only does she love to get gifts, but she loves putting thought into giving gifts to people that communicates, I know you. I see you, like I know your interests, I know what you like, and uh, it's, it's just amazing. And so as we enter the Christmas season and prepare our hearts to celebrate, you know, the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, today we're kicking off a brand new series called Three Gifts. And over the next three weeks, we're going to look at some of the symbolism and significance of the three gifts that the wise men were said to have brought to Jesus around the time of his birth. And so today, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, says this. 
after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, how many wise men were there? How many uh, of you have a nativity scene at your house? Or maybe if you don't have one, your parents or your grandparents had a nativity scene. How many wise men do we always see depicted in a nativity scene? Three, right? We tend to think that there were three wise men because of the three gifts that were listed, but scripture doesn't actually ever tell us how many there were. The word in the original language is plural, so we know there were at least two, but that's about as much as we know. Early church tradition suggests that there were as many as 12 wise men that showed up. But the truth is we just don't know how many there were. We have no idea, but who were they? Well, the Greek word in the original language is magoi, which is translated as either wise men or magi, depending on the English translation of your Bible. And it says they were from the east. So these were most likely referring to a pagan priestly tribe of people from the Medes and the Persians that lived in either Iraq or Iran, possibly Pakistan or India, maybe even as far east as China. And there are numerous historical references to validate this. They were high-ranking, powerful group of people that were likely very educated, that were advisors to royalty in the East, that would consult with rulers and kings about the things that rulers and kings would want to know about. And they were something like priests. They were interpreters of signs and omens, and they were especially interested in astronomy and astrology. And in those days, they didn't make much of a separation between the superstition and the science. The science is astronomy, the superstition is astrology, and in those days, they were pretty well mixed and blended together. Now, although they were pagan, they believed, they were monotheistic, and they believed that the stars gave divine revelation. So much so that when they saw a certain star appear in the sky they packed up their things and started traveling a long distance to bring gifts to the one who had been prophesied about who would be born a king. They were clearly familiar with the Old Testament text that over numerous times, over hundreds and thousands of years, prophesied about a coming Messiah who would be born a king. So they bring these gifts to worship him. Now, no one is exactly sure what star they saw or even if it was a star in the strictest sense of the word. In my research this week, some have, you know, suggested that maybe it was a supernova or, you know, it was a comet. Many theories uh, concern a specific alignment of planets like Jupiter and Saturn that appeared in the constellation of Pisces. There are a lot of astronomical happenings that could potentially fit the bill because of how planets and constellations held meaning and significance to early astrologers. But if you want to have your mind blown, my, the, my favorite explanation uh, and description of what those wise men likely saw came from a documentary that Kelly and the boys and I watched a couple years ago called Story in the Stars. And uh, it's by Joe Amaral. He's got a book on this. There's a DVD. There's also a digital download that you can get at storyinthestars.com. I promise you, your mind will be blown. It is a fascinating documentary that basically describes how God has written his story in the stars and describes what 
was in the stars around the time of Jesus' birth that would have prompted these wise men to bring gifts and worship this baby who was born a king. I would encourage you to check it out. I, I, I would love to hear your feedback on it after you watch it. I think the DVD is only like 15 bucks, and um, the digital download is only like $8, so it's well worth the price. So these wise men travel, and they come to Bethlehem. They talk to King Herod. Skip down a few verses to verse 9. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Kind of odd gifts for a newborn baby, don't you think? Those of you who are parents, when you had your baby, did anybody bring you gold? Any frankincense? I know when Kelly and I had our kids, we didn't get any gold or frankincense or myrrh. When we had our kids, we got the typical gifts of diapers and wipes, onesies, blankies, pacifiers, socks, the infamous baby snot sucker. You know what I'm talking about? That blue bulb syringe that you squeeze, you stick in the nostril, you let go and it sucks all the snot out so they can breathe a little easier. This week, I actually looked that up just, you know, to see if that's still a thing. And they have apparently upgraded, I guess, the technology of this so that it's more natural and efficient. And I was shocked and appalled when I saw that the new way to do this is you still stick a thing in the baby's nose, but the other end of this tube goes in your mouth and you suck the snot out of your baby's nose. Like, why is that even a thing? I literally gagged when I saw the picture of this. Like, why? Hey, more power to you if that's what you want to do. I'll stick with the old-fashioned bulb syringe. That's gross. But those are the kind of gifts that people today get when they have a child. But these wise men bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, not only were these gifts incredibly valuable and expensive, but they were also very practical and deeply spiritual. And so... We're going to talk about the meaning of these three gifts over the next three weeks. And uh, gold, uh, we're going to talk about on, at our Christmas experiences on the 17th and 18th, point to Jesus as our king, the kingship of Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at myrrh and how it points to Jesus as the suffering servant or the lamb of God. But today, we're going to talk about frankincense. And before I tell you about the meaning of frankincense, let me tell you a little bit about frankincense. Because if you look up online or you talk to essential oil experts, which there are many of, some of you in this room may be essential oil aficionados. I was going to use a different term, but I figured I would be kind. Frankincense is apparently like the Swiss army knife of essential oils. It's got lots and lots of uses. Now, Kelly and I are a little bit familiar with essential oils. We've dabbled with them here and there. We've got a handful of them at home, you know, for different ailments and all that stuff. My youngest sister, Leah, is a lot more knowledgeable, and she has a wide variety of them at her house. In fact, when I was in the hospital last year, uh, she 
put, uh, she brought some digize. It was a blend of essential oils that's supposed to help, you know, stimulate peristalsis and help things get moving along. You know, when I was in the hospital having a trouble with uh, stuff going on in there, but... Um, You know, so frankincense is called the king of essential oils because of its wide array of health benefits. And I wrote down a handful of them after my research this week, and I was shocked, maybe you will be too, to hear about all of the benefits of frankincense. It is an anti-inflammatory, antiseptic, and an astringent. The oil is also considered a tonic because of it benefits because it benefits all of the body systems, including the digestive, respiratory, and nervous systems. Studies have shown that it can boost your immune system, helping you to fight off bacteria and viruses. In fact, one study done in 2012 showed that there is a compound in essential in frankincense oil that can help fight off cancer cells that have become immune or resistant to chemotherapy. I thought that was interesting. It can also break up phlegm in your respiratory tract and lungs, helping to alleviate congestion and reduce coughing. It can reduce the pain associated with minor cuts or bug bites or stings. Because frankincense has antiseptic properties, it can also kill germs and reduce inflammation in the mouth, which can help reduce your bad breath, help you fight cavities and mouth sores. I thought that was interesting. When inhaled, frankincense oil has been shown to reduce high blood pressure, lower your heart rate, and reduce stress and anxiety. It improves digestion. It improves the appearance of skin. It helps prevent wrinkles. It lifts and tightens the skin to stop or reverse the signs of aging. Because it's a powerful astringent, it also helps reduce acne blemishes or the appearance of large pores. That was just a handful of the benefits of frankincense oil. And some of you were like, man, I had no idea. I'm like pulling out my phone. I'm going to order some of this stuff right now. Like I want some just for the reduction of stress and anxiety. How many could use some, some help in that category right now? Well, we don't know all of the things that it was used for in Jesus' time, but we do know that it was expensive and that it was often used to help treat people's wounds and heal diseases. We do know that. So that was the practical component of it. But spiritually speaking, frankincense was also what was used for priests to burn incense. That when the smoke arose from the incense, it represented the prayers of the people being offered to God. And that is why Bible scholars agree that frankincense points to the priestly nature of Jesus or Jesus as our high priest. Now, many of you here today were maybe raised Catholic, and so you may have some idea of what a priest is or what a priest does. But if you, like me, didn't grow up Catholic, you may not have an understanding of why Jesus being our high priest should be important to us. Like, why does that, why should that matter to me? So what I want to do today is maybe a little bit different than what I normally do on a given Sunday. And I want to go a little bit deep and bring you some heady teaching. And hopefully you can handle it. If you can handle it, say, I can handle it. All right, good. You can handle it. So here we go. What is a priest? What does a priest do? In the Old Testament, a priest served one primary role that was broken up into two different functions. Their primary role was to serve as a representative to God of the people. And their functions were twofold. The first function that a priest did was to make sacrifices. They would take an animal and sacrifice it, representing forgiveness of sins for the people. And the second thing they did was to offer prayers on behalf of the people to God. 
And so those are the two functions, and these are the two functions I want to look at today as we look at Jesus as our high priest, sacrifices and prayers. First, sacrifices. From the moment that Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden against God, there have been two things that have stood in opposition to each other, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Now, I understand that in today's culture and in our society that sin is not a very popular idea or topic to talk about. People might respond and say, who are you to tell me that I'm a sinner? I'm not hurting anybody. Who are you to tell me that what I'm doing is sin? As long as I'm not hurting anybody, I'm fine. That's your, that may be your truth, but that's not my truth. I deserve to be happy. I heard one person describe sin as an old-fashioned way to scare children into being good. So in our culture, the suggestion that we are sinners is an affront and offensive to a lot of people. But here's the thing we have to understand. Until we understand the holiness of God, we will always have a casual approach to sin. Until we understand what it means that God is holy, we will never take sin seriously. What does it mean that God is holy? The word is otherness. It is he is transcendently separate and other. There is no one like our God. He is perfect in every way, pure. There is no fault or stain or wrong in him. He is altogether separate, transcendently other. He is holy. And holiness isn't just one of his attributes. Holiness is the perfection of all of his attributes. His power is holy. His justice is holy. His mercy is holy. His grace is holy. And until we understand the holiness of God, we will always have a casual approach to sin. And his holiness is what makes him worthy of our praise. The fact that he is altogether separate. There is no one like our God. The fact that he is holy is why we worship him, because there is no one like him. So God is holy, and our challenge is that we're not. None of us are. Not me, not you, not the really nice person that you work with. In fact, Scripture tells us that all of us, every single one of us, has sinned. We have all fallen short of God's perfect standard of righteousness and holiness. And our sin separates us from him. And that's why God hates sin so much is because of the damage that it does to our relationship with him. Because he wants relationship with him, but because he is holy, because he is perfect, because he is pure, sin can't be in his presence. And so he hates that sin damages our relationship and breaks intimacy with him. And so therein lies the problem. We have a perfect, holy, pure God and sinful man. So what's the solution? Well, in the Old Testament, God instructed the high priest one time a year on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, if you're familiar with Judaism, to sacrifice an animal to bring forgiveness for the people's sin. He would sacrifice an animal go into the innermost part of the tabernacle or the temple behind the veil into the holy of holies, 
the priest would then light the frankincense and the smoke would rise representing the cries of God's people for mercy. And then the priest would take some of the blood from the slain animal and put it on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is where they kept the Ten Commandments and some other items, and that's where the presence of God dwelt. That's where the high priest would, would make intercession and would apply the blood on the lid of this Ark, which was called the mercy seat. And then, not only that, so how many of you have ever heard of a scapegoat before? Heard the term scapegoat? That term actually comes from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Because after they killed an innocent animal, an innocent one dying in place of the guilty they would take a separate goat and the priest would lay his hands on the goat while confessing the sins of the people, symbolically transferring the sins of the people onto the goat that they would then take outside the camp and drive out into the, the wilderness to symbolize that the sins of the people had been separated from them, which would once again make it possible for us to come close to God and be in relationship with him. That's the symbolism and significance of the sacrifice. Now, so the first animal died as payment for sin. The second animal, the scapegoat, was run out of the community to symbolize that their sins had been separated from them. Now, quick question. How many of you, after hearing that, are really glad that you don't live in Old Testament times anymore? <laughs> Admittedly, like when I read this and when I read the Old Testament it's a little weird. Anybody ever thought that before? Am I the only one? Like, it's kind of gross. Like, it seems cruel. Like, animal sacrifice. Like, slitting the throat of an animal, collecting some of its blood in a bucket, and then going into this room and lighting some frankincense to produce smoke, and then pouring some of the blood on a golden box, and then you offer some prayers. Kind of extreme, don't you think? A little gross, unfair, that an innocent little animal is dying in the place of guilty, sinful people. Who would come up with such a thing? See, here's what we have to understand about God. Because God is just, he has to punish sin. But God is not only just, he is also merciful. And here is the beauty of what God does and what he, why he instituted the sacrificial system. See, the sin sacrifice satisfies the justice of God and extends mercy at the same time. See, the, the sacrifice satisfies God's justice because it says that the wages of sin is death. Something has to die when sin happens. And it's the innocent in place of the guilty. And scripture says without the shedding of blood, there can't be any forgiveness for sins. So, so the sacrifice satisfies God's justice with the slaying of an innocent animal. But at the same time and in the same act, it also reveals God's love and his mercy for people by separating their sins from them so that we could be made clean and pure and be able to come into relationship with God again. That's the beauty of what God instituted. But that was a temporary covering in the Old Testament, Old Covenant. The priest had to do this every year. 
Because the sacrifice of the animal wasn't enough. And I'm thankful that we don't live in the Old Covenant anymore. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant was an agreement that God made with people that set the terms for how we could be in relationship with God. But that Old Covenant was done away with when Jesus came and he instituted a new agreement through a new and better sacrifice that's talked about in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 12, which says this, for God's will was for us to be made holy because there's the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And for us to be close to God and be in relationship, we have to be made holy. He says, be holy for I am holy. And God's will was for us to be holy, how? By a sacrifice. By the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, but not just temporarily, once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never really take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Doing away with the old system because now Jesus, the perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of God died in our place. His blood was shed for our sins. Not a temporary covering like the Old Testament sacrifice. But Jesus, our great high priest, offered his life once and for all, shedding his innocent blood as payment for the penalty of our sins, satisfying the justness of God. And in so doing, when we trust in that sacrifice, he removes all of our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Interestingly enough, when Jesus was crucified on Golgotha, it says they let him outside the city, just like the scapegoat was taken outside the camp and released into the wilderness. Jesus was taken outside the city and he died on a hill in the wilderness. So Jesus was both the sacrificial lamb of God to pay penalty for our sin and the scapegoat so that our sins could be removed from us. Jesus is our great high priest. And that was just the first function. He became our sacrifice. The second function of priest was to Offer prayers, pray prayers on behalf of the people to God. And I want you to look at what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, when he says that Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is right now interceding for us. The writer of Hebrews chapter 7 says, Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You guys, 24-7, Jesus lives to pray for you and me. He is interceding for us. How much hope, how much confidence should that give you to know that when you're going through a hard time, Jesus, the Son of God, is at the right hand of the Father saying, Dad, I've been where they're at. I know what they're going through. We've got to send help. How much confidence does it, is there anybody awake and alive in here today? Like it gives me so much hope to know that Jesus, my high priest, is praying for me. He is praying for you. I love knowing that Jesus is praying for me. When I'm scared, he's praying for me. When I'm being tempted, he's praying that my faith wouldn't fail. When I'm anxious, Jesus is praying that I would experience his peace. When I'm hurting and sad, Jesus is praying that I would be comforted. 
when I'm being criticized or falsely accused, Jesus is praying for me. He's praying for you. What do you need? What are you going through? Jesus is right now interceding for you. Here's the thing, though. It says he's at the right hand of the Father, and so sometimes we think that, you know what, he's, he's distant, he's far off, we don't know where heaven is. No, 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 he's not some distant, far off God who doesn't understand the stuff that we go through down here on earth. He is a high priest who understands what we're going through, and he cares. He cares. Scripture says this about our high priest in Hebrews 4. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, what is his name? Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness. Why? Because he faced all the same things that we do, yet he did not sin. You guys, we don't have a God who doesn't understand some of the stuff that we go through. Jesus was a human being with flesh and bone, had skin, walked through this world and understood what it's like to feel pain, to feel rejection. He understands what it means to experience the frailties and limitations of this body and have, have people whip you. He understands the emotional pain of having your best friends betray you and walk away from you. He understands the agony of being alone and feeling abandoned. Our high priest understands our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our pain. In fact, whatever you're going through in this very moment, he understands it. If you feel stressed and overwhelmed, Jesus understands. Because guess what? When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, he would go to the cross. Friends are running away. He knows what's coming, the pain that he's about to endure. And he says, my soul is overwhelmed with agony to the point of death. Jesus understands what it's like to feel overwhelmed. If you feel misunderstood, Jesus understands that too. A lot of people didn't understand some of the things that Jesus said and rejected him and walked away from him. Jesus was conceived out of wedlock, born to a teenage mother. Talk about scandalous. Walked around town as a boy to people whispering, there's that bastard boy. Jesus lived in poverty. He was criticized, ridiculed, bullied, tempted by the devil again and again and again when he was at his weakest and most vulnerable state, and yet he did not sin. Jesus experienced the death of a close friend, so he understands what it's like when you feel the heartbreak and the loss of someone that you love that's close to you that, that dies. He understands. He understands what it's like to have people betray you and turn their back on you. Worst of all, Jesus felt abandoned by God on the cross as his evidence when he cried out, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? So if you've ever felt abandoned by God, guess what? Jesus in his humanness understands what it's like to feel that and he cares for you. Whatever you feel, whatever you have felt, he has felt. Wherever you have hurt, he has hurt. 
He's your great high priest who understands our weaknesses and he cares. He's not like up in heaven looking down going, oh man, that sucks to be you. Never had to experience that. I'm not sure what that's like. No, he has been where we are and he understands our weakness. And because he understands, that's why Hebrews tells us, that's why we can come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Why? Because there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. You guys, so many people have a wrong view of God. They think he's some mean, judgmental, ready to strike you, you know, down with an iron, you know, hammer or lightning bolt. And, and we, we cower in fear when we even think about approaching God. You don't need to cower. You don't need to have some special formal language when you pray. Sometimes I'm amazed when I talk to people, like I'll be in conversation with them and it's totally normal. And then they start praying and all of a sudden King James starts coming out. Heavenly Father, I beseech thee in light of thou most bountiful blessing. Like, what is that? Stop. Talk to your Father. Because he understands what you need. And we can run boldly into his presence to receive grace and mercy when we need it the most. And you guys, I have needed it these last couple weeks. I've been going through some stuff and I've been down and discouraged, defeated. And so guess what I did? I ran into the throne room and I said, dad, I need some help. And guess what? He gave me grace to go through. So what do you need? Run boldly with confidence, knowing that Jesus knows what it's like to feel what you feel. And that's why he will give you grace power, supernatural power to endure what you're going through. He will give you mercy even when you don't deserve it because he became your sacrifice and when you trust in his sacrifice his righteousness is credited to you. So guess what? When you approach God he doesn't see your sin. Thank you Jesus. He sees the shed blood of Jesus Christ covering our sin. When my kids need something from me, they don't cower in fear. They don't have to schedule an appointment. They don't have to use any kind of special language. They're like, hey, dad, you know what? I need this. Can you give it to me? Most of the times I'm like, yeah, I would love to because I'm a father who loves his kids and loves to give good gifts to my kids just like our heavenly father wants to give good gifts to us. Jesus knows, he understands and is ready to give you grace and mercy when you need it the most. Think about the amazing details surrounding Christ's birth and God's plan. John 1 says that in the very beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It was love for you and me that prompted God to send Jesus. And in his divine providence, God did this at a time when the stars in the sky painted a picture and sent a message to some stargazing wise men to leave their land and bring gifts to offer to this newborn king that would prophetically proclaim what his nature would be. 
And the gift of frankincense was a foreshadowing, symbolizing that Jesus would be our great high priest, an innocent one shedding his blood for the guilty so that our sins could be paid for. And that when we trust in that sacrifice, he removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. But not only did he die for our sins, he would rise again three days later and then ascend to the Father where he right now is sitting there pleading, interceding, praying for you and for me. The gift of the Magi points to the greatest gift that was ever given in Jesus, our great high priest. And because we have a high priest who knows what we go through, we can run to him with boldness and confidence, knowing that he will give us grace and mercy when we need it the most. So let us boldly come into his presence now as we close with prayer. Jesus, thank you for being our high priest. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season, you would open our eyes, give us a new perspective on who you are and why you came. Help us to understand the significance of what you did as our high priest, no longer needing to bring an animal and sacrifice it so that our sins could be forgiven. But as the sinless, spotless lamb of God, you gave your life once and for all so that we could be forgiven, cleansed, redeemed, restored, healed. And you've removed our sins from us. And now you ever live to pray for us. So what are you going through right now? In this moment, I wanna encourage you, just, just cry out to Jesus. And know that as you do, he's praying for you. Do you have a loved one who's far from God? Jesus, your high priest, as you think about that person's name in your heart, as you maybe speak it out or, you know, say it in your mind, know that Jesus, your high priest, is the Savior who's also praying for that person. Are you struggling financially? Tell him. Jesus, your high priest, is also your provider. Are you hurting emotionally? Are you sad this Christmas season because maybe you've lost a loved one? Maybe this season is a trigger for painful memories from your past. Know that Jesus, your high priest, is your comforter. He's close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Are you struggling physically? Do you have an ailment, an illness, a sickness? Know that Jesus, your high priest, took stripes upon his back so that you could be healed. He's your healer. Are you tired, exhausted, weak, feeling like you're at the end of your rope? Know that his strength is made perfect in your weakness. Jesus, your high priest, says my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. What do you need? Just tell him right now. He's praying for you and he wants to give you grace right now for whatever you're going through. He'll give you mercy when you need it the most. Are you battling anxiety, mental turmoil, fear, 
panic attacks. When you present your request to God, Jesus, our great high priest, when you thank him for what he did for us, he will give a peace that passes understanding to guard your hearts and minds. Jesus, our high peace, priest, is our peace. Whatever you're going through, Jesus knows. And he's praying for you. And I pray that gives you hope. I pray that stirs faith in you. I pray that renews your strength. As we continue praying, with all heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe there's somebody here today in the room or even watching online that maybe never really understood why Jesus had to die on a cross, what the significance of that was. Maybe you didn't understand why there were so many animals that had to die in the Old Testament. But maybe you're, for the first time, coming to an understanding of why God takes sin so seriously. It's because it separates us from him. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection to forgive you of your sins, maybe today is the day where you stop running and you finally surrender and say, Jesus, I give my life to you. I need your grace. I need your mercy right now to wash me and cleanse me. So if that's you here today, with all heads bowed and eyes closed, would you boldly raise your hands and say, I need, I need a relationship with Jesus. I need to know that my high priest who shed his blood for me has forgiven me of all of my sin. Will you just say, yes, that's me all across this room. Say, I wanna know that I've been forgiven. I see that hand in the center over here. If you're watching online, you click the link in the comment section of whatever platform you're watching. Is there anybody else here today that wants to know that their sins have been forgiven by Jesus, the sinless, he never sinned, he never did anything wrong. Just like an innocent animal, he was slain, willingly laid his life down so that our sins could be forgiven. And if you wanna have your sins removed from you, all it takes is a simple act of surrender. Where scripture says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. We'll be adopted into the family of God. We'll become a son or daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God, I thank you for sending Jesus to be our high priest. And Lord, as we continue on in this series, and as really we continue on in the rest of this month, going about all of the busyness and the hustle and bustle of the season, parties and shopping and buying gifts. Lord, may we have a new perspective with a new appreciation that produces some wonder in our hearts at the greatest gift ever given in Jesus. And may that wonder move us to worship, just like the wise men who brought their gifts and bowed down and worshiped him. May we do the same. May we live our lives as an act of worship to you, our great high priest. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Church, does that message encourage you? Did you learn some things? I hope so. I hope so.
As our dream team members get into position to serve you with excellence on your way out in just a moment, let me uh, just remind everyone here that if you need or want prayer for anything, our prayer team is always available in the back corner of the room to pray with you, to pray for you. Uh, I also want to let everybody here know that with the Christmas Wonderland outreach happening this week, you should have received an email this week, but immediately following this service is a mandatory training session for all Christmas Wonderland volunteers. It's really, really important that everyone who is serving and volunteering at the outreach this week stay for a little while to learn about what is included and involved in your specific assignment. So that's immediately following this service. Uh, I hope that you can stay. We would appreciate it very, very much. Well, don't forget, if you need some more uh, invites, grab some on your way out. But church, I love you so much. I'm excited to dive into the symbolism and significance of myrrh next week. But I love you. Have a great week. God bless. We'll see you next Sunday.